the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Our lives at the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe may bend towards justice, but it doesn't bend on its own. This quote, the arc of the moral universe quote, is one that Dr. King used many times. The original source of that quote was, in fact, the 19th century Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker. In this episode of the Living Prophets podcast, I present a sermon from William Schultz in 2007, who was the head of Amnesty International and, separately, the head of the Unitarian Universalist Association, where he lays out this long moral arc that so many have talked about. So my 12 years at Amnesty constituted a remarkable opportunity, and they were also years of great achievement for human rights. I participated in a conversation with a bunch of professors at Syracuse University shortly before I retired from Amnesty, and someone asked whether over the course of the last 200 years, human rights had gotten better or worse. And with one exception... The professors all offered abstruse reasons why the human rights situation was worse today than in 1806. And I listened to all this moaning, and I said in my customarily tactful way, Are you guys nuts? Why, just in the 12 years I've been with Amnesty, we've seen the creation of the International Criminal Court, war crimes, tribunals in Rwanda, Bosnia, Sierra Leone, the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, the ruling by the British law lords that tyrants like Augusto Pinochet can be held responsible for their crimes in any country on earth, successful civil suits against torturers who take up residence in this country, the rapid spread of democracy around the globe, the abolition of the death penalty in a majority of countries around the world, and You don't think that we're better off today than when the slaveholder Thomas Jefferson could get elected president? And these were academics. That shut them up for about six seconds. And yet, despite these successes, there is much more to do. Today, I want to talk about what we still have to do religiously. Because the struggle for human rights, and more broadly for social justice, is in very profound ways a religious struggle and a spiritual calling. Over and over again, I found my work at Amnesty profoundly informed by my Unitarian Universalist faith, and that's what I want to talk with you about this morning, why Unitarian Universalist values matter so much to the world at large. As practitioners of a religious enterprise, all of us are called upon, of course, to grapple with such profound questions as, why is there something rather than nothing? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? Why do bad things happen to good people? These are very challenging questions. They are questions I've been seeking the answers to for more than 40 years, and If Alicia had given me a few more minutes this morning, I would give you the answers. But (laughs) the truth is that even the answer to the age-old question, is it more religious to sit in a pub and think of the church? Or to sit in a church and think of the pub, the answer (laughs) even to that is not self-evident. So in a way then, going 
Going from my years with the UUA to amnesty, where the kinds of questions we dealt with were at least a bit more concrete, questions like how can we get the Chinese to stop torturing 19-year-old Tibetan nuns, going from the contemplation of religious questions to questions of human rights, is a little like traversing the reference points referred to in the famous Zen saying, after ecstasy, the laundry. And yet, the laundry doesn't get done if those who are supposed to do the washing lack the inspiration, and that, of course, is where religion comes in. We're witness today to an enormous struggle between those who would close down culture and those who would keep it open between those who would resort quickly to violence and those who would resist it as long as possible, between those who believe that the future is set by forces beyond human control and those who would take responsibility for the planet's future, between those who welcome the preeminence of one nation and those who give their fealty to the common interests of the globe. It is, in short, a struggle between those with a parched vision and those with a generous heart. And Unitarian Universalism, for better or worse, has always cast its lot on the side of the generous heart. And at the center of that generous heart is the conviction that truth takes many forms, that that love takes many guises, uh, that there is no necessary correlation between wisdom and power, and that the mysteries of life are so great that life's meaning cannot be captured in any narrow formulation, but outspills all traditional categories of thought. Osama bin Laden doesn't believe that. Dick Cheney doesn't believe that. Hugh Jintao, the president of China, doesn't believe that. Pope Benedict doesn't believe that. Bill O'Reilly doesn't believe that. Howard Stern doesn't believe that. But it is true. I can't tell you how often I heard some version of this sentiment expressed in the past 12 years. The Israelis are the sole source of the problem. The Palestinians are nothing but a bunch of murderous thugs. America is the fount of all evil. The terrorists are pure and simple barbarians. And sometimes I wish the secret of life was as simple as all that. The the Chinese philosopher Hong Zhongyong said... Only those who can appreciate the least palatable of root vegetables can possibly know the meaning of life. (laughs) I wish it were that easy. Love takes many guises, and there is no necessary correlation between wisdom and power. That's why everybody's rights to free expression must be protected, because every one of us may sometimes be right, and we know for damn sure that every one of us is often wrong. Unitarian Universalism places protection of that right at the apex of our faith, our generous heart. And then there's a second feature of that generous heart, and that is the recognition that what human beings share is far broader and more important than what divides us. In the midst of the 1994 Rwandan genocide, a a girls' school was attacked by machete-wielding militiamen in the middle of the night. The teenagers were rousted from their beds about 2 a.m. and forced into the courtyard. 
And then the militia commander ordered them to separate themselves, Hutu on this side, Tutsi on that, so that only the Tutsi could be killed. But none of the girls moved. And a second time, the the commander issued his orders, Hutu over here, Tutsi over there. And for a second time, not a one of the girls moved. And finally, one little girl, naturally terrified, timorously raised her hand. I'm sorry, sir, she said, but we, we cannot separate ourselves. Because, you see, in this school, we are not Hutu. We are not Tutsi. We are all just Rwandan, just, just little Rwandan girls. At which point, every one of the girls was slaughtered. But what? A legacy they leave. We are not Hutu. We are not Tutsi. We are all just Rwandan, just little Rwandan girls. That sentiment is the most fundamental religious sentiment of them all, and the echoes of that young girl's voice bespeak a graciousness for which the world is desperate. In a magnificent essay entitled The Moral Necessity of Metaphor, The novelist Cynthia Ozick quotes chapter 19, passage from the book of Leviticus. The stranger that sojourneth with you shall be unto you as if a homeborn among you, and you shall love him as yourself, because you too were once strangers in the land of Egypt. And Ozick goes on to say that it is exactly because at some point in every one of our lives, at some point, every single one of us was a stranger in our own land of Egypt, that we can identify with another, that in Ozick's words, doctors can imagine what it is to be a patient. Those who have no pain at the moment can imagine what it is to suffer. Those at the center of power can imagine what it is to be outside the circle of power. Strong can imagine what it is to be weak, and we strangers can imagine the familiar hearts of other strangers. I've never been tortured. I've never had my arm amputated, but I know plenty of people who have, and I'm compelled by my religious faith to make a metaphorical leap from my own trivial sufferings into those of the hearts of strangers. And what I find there is remarkable. What I find is familiarity, familiar hearts of every stranger. The second feature of Unitarian Universalism's generous heart is its conviction that what we share is far more important than what we don't, and that all blood flows red, even the blood of my adversaries. Now that, that, my friends, is truly a radical, earth-shattering recognition that my enemies, too, can bleed. Every one of us has a responsibility to build a more benevolent nation, a more hospitable people, a more welcoming world. Somewhere in one of the great art museums of Europe, there hangs a large painting of Faust and the devil sitting at a chess table. Faust has made his pact with the devil, and now his face is contorted in anguish because he retains on the chessboard but a knight and a king, and the king is in check. 
One day, a great chess master happened into the museum, and naturally, this painting caught his eye, and he sat down in front of it and stared. Fifteen minutes passed, then twenty, and still the master stared, and then suddenly, leaping to his feet, he shouted, It's a lie, I tell you! The king and the knight have another move. They have another move. And that is the final message of Unitarian Universalism's generous heart, that no matter what orthodoxy may claim, no matter what political ideology may bluster, history is not finished. The future is not fated. What comes next is in our hands, so that in the face of hardship and injustice, we say the story is not over. For it is not just the king, but the knight. Not just the queen, but the rook. Not just the bishop, but the pawn. Not just the wealthy, but the pauper. Not just the powerful, but every starving, lonely, frightened person in the world. Every single person, every single one of us has another move. We have another move. So these three gifts of a generous heart signal how critical Unitarian Universalist faith is to the trepidations of the day, a conviction that truth takes many forms, a recognition that what human beings share is far greater than what divides us, and a certainty that the future is not in the hands of a miscreant government or an inexorable fate or an angry God, but is waiting to be shaped by either our foolishness or our benevolence. It's a demanding faith, demanding faith that we claim this Unitarian Universalism, but one that has never been more important to sustain. If I learned anything from my days at Amnesty, it's this, that no authentic person can live in this world unmoved by how immense is the tragedy that is creation. No pretty words from a pulpit can cover that up. No simple faith can fix it. No complex theology can explain it away. It just is. Truly religious people know that, fear it, sometimes flee it, but more often do our best to face it. For we know that our job is not to deny evil or heartache or death, but to keep companion with them at the same time that we keep companion with blessings and possibility and grace. Losing our faith every single night and gaining it again with the coming of the day. That's what happened to me for 12 years at Amnesty International. I lost my faith almost every single night. And thank God I gained it again with the coming of the day. That's just the way it is with us human beings, flawed and fragile. I was often tempted to wish it otherwise to never hear another story of torture, to never learn of another senseless killing, to never see tears again. But whenever I wished for a world like that, I reminded myself of just one thing. In the ancient world, a poetry contest was held each year, and the third place winner 
was presented a rose made out of silver. The second place winner, a rose made out of gold. But the first place winner received a real rose, a living rose, that while it was far from perfect and didn't live forever, spoke while it did of art and beauty and passion and power. And who among us, my friends, who among us, if we had to choose, would not choose the living rose?